Hello and welcome to the Sophetic Dreams podcast with me, Scott Severbalis. This is a show where I interview artists from the world of electronic music. My guest this week is multi-talented musician Pete Kember, aka Sonic Boom. Pete started making music way back in 1982. He was a student at Ruby Art College at the time, and his first group, The Spacemen, featured fellow art student Jason Pierce. In early 1984, following a change in the lineup, the group became Spacemen Free, who are, in my opinion, one of the most influential groups of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I mean, you can hear the influence of Spacemen Free in a lot of bands today. Following the breakup of the band in 1991, Pete has released various albums under the monikers of Spectrum and EAR, but in recent years he's gone back to making music as Sonic Boom. On the show, Pete talks about the recording process of his new album, and he also speaks about the current remix album, Almost Nothing Is Nearly Enough, what it was like working with legendary composer Delia Derbyshire, who was the subject of my last podcast with the wonderful Caroline Katz, the director of the new film about her life. Please remember you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Deezer and iTunes. And thanks as always for listening to the show. So chatting with me today is Pete Kemba, aka Sonic Boom. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. Um, we're going to start off with how I've been talking about with a few of my recent guests is how you've been coping with the well, this current lockdown and have you been finally been keeping yourself busy? I've been trying to keep myself busy. Um, I've been doing some music work and um, but it's kind of, for me, it's the antithesis of, of the atmosphere I like to work in. So uh, it can be, I've been working with a friend of mine here in Lisbon on an album and the stuff's been really good. I feel that there's been intensification of uh, of the songwriting because of the because of the situation. Uh, so I don't think it's not very easy, but I think it's turned out really good. So That's good. sometimes you know um, it's better than nothing, right? Yeah. Take what you can get. Yeah. But yeah, I've been trying to keep busy. Um, not always easy. I feel that I'm sure, like everyone, I feel I've uh, YouTube. I feel I can still find some stuff, but. Netflix and all those—I mean, most of that stuff to me, I is just junk, quite frankly. Um, and the stuff that I don't think is junk, uh, <laughs> I feel I've watched it all. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's depressing <laughs> looking. Actually, it's depressing looking at the state of of uh, of that sort of media when I look at the, the stuff that people have made. I'm like, oh. I know. But I guess it's always been like that. Yeah. And um, so you've not had not you've not got like four books on the go or anything like that. <laughs> no, I haven't read anything. Um I haven't, no. Having the time, isn't it? It's funny enough. <laughs> if you're doing yeah, all your music. I've been listening to a lot of music and I am lucky that I have a lot of records and always had a lot of records or for a long time I have. And there's some records I have that I never listened to that much, that I wasn't that into it. I bought it and then wasn't particularly into it. So I've been, you know, going through and going through everything and pulling out some things and finding a few, finding a few bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, I feel after a year, I mean, I listen to a lot of music, so I'm, I'm ready to get some new records, but um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can find good stuff secondhand here, so that's that's. Oh, that's good. Oh, that is yeah. good. It's always important, isn't it? Find a record hand, well, a record, second shop or a bookshop or anything like that. Really important. Um, I've been still really enjoying your latest album, All Things Being Equal, which that came out last year. Was it June, wasn't it? I think I remember. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, it was, yeah, which yeah, would have been a few. 2020, 2020, it was meant to be. I think the actual release date was 05, 06, 2020, because they were inflexible. But uh, in my yeah. mind, it was 06, 06, 2020. Because I, f- I felt like when it when it came out, obviously this wasn't planned like that, but it just seemed to me anyway that it was kind of like the perfect album for for that lockdown because it, everyone's searching for more electronica or kind of more the ambient releases, and it's kind of like and a lot of the messages on the songs was very positive and inspiring. And I just wondered, did you feel like you've had a lot of feedback because it it, it seemed to me the album we all needed. It's the only time in my life I ever felt I hit zeitgeist on any level, and um, which is which can be a dangerous thing for musicians to hit. Um, but um, you know, I didn't. It wasn't. I had no idea that COVID would be so prevalent when the record came out. But I did know, as we were talking before we started the session, that we have so many different issues on this planet that are or the critical fucking state. We're down to 10% of our fish in the ocean or 10% of our insects and, and dropping rapidly still. What the fuck is going on? You know, we all need to pull our fucking fingers out and cut down the consumption, uh, zero impact, you know, of course it's the dream, but we just have to reduce everything and we need to fucking clean stuff up as well. It's a fucking mess out there. Yeah. So I was, I'd been, since I moved to Portugal, I live in a, um, a national park here and beautiful. it's sublimely beautiful and many different shades of it on different days in different ways. It's um, kind of a paradise as much as anywhere in the Western world can be a paradise, which I, I think is almost impossible. But um, it's, it's such a, the way the ecology is here, um, just really made me realize that we can actually, this whole mountainside here was originally turned to rock and uh, a barren mountainside through agriculture. And then a couple of hundred years ago, the royal family from Portugal and some of the, the, the big wigs um, from the Portuguese court decided to build palaces out here on the mountain and plant the mountainside with different trees and stuff, a whole variety of different trees. And uh, for hunting grounds is why they actually planted it. But they created a whole uh, little mini ecosystem here, Um, changed the weather by planting all the stuff, it changed the weather, there's a lot of humidity and rain here. And even though it's in Portugal where the sun bakes, when the sun comes out here, it, it bakes. It's, it's like North Africa. But because of the, the planting, it just has created this amazing ecosystem that's um, just booming and it's man-made. And I just, uh, it, being in this environment made me more sensitive maybe, or more, I've been aware of loads of these issues but 
the more I was looking into it, the more I realized how close everything is to critical collapse. Yeah. And I was reading people like Buckminster Fuller, who predicted all this in the 60s, but also had solutions for it. And I don't think anyone's ever bettered it. And everything he said would happen, happened. Everything he said, if it isn't dealt with, will happen, has happened. Fairly accurately to his timeline as well. So this was an incredibly smart uh, person, incredibly one of the first people to do open source and to, to realize that, you know, <laughs> built-in obsolescence, mass production, mass consumerism, and all these things were going to destroy us in a really in, in short form. And I think he was born around late 19th century, right around 1900. And he said even in his lifetime, how the world had like stratospherically changed with the discovery of the atom and of radiation and you know, almost like, you know, every, every year or two, there was some massive thing where we're actually starting to really understand the universe, our place in the universe, the magical ecosystem, as far as we know we have here, that doesn't exist anywhere else or anything comparable to it. By a, let's call it a freak of nature and DNA. Of course, everything that lives on this planet has DNA. Um, so it just really, I just realized that we i needed to i couldn't make a record without it having a, a purpose and it, without it being useful in some way and just for the just songs about me or what i felt or thought i didn't think was enough and i i felt it was important to try and also i know i don't think it'll be easy to sort all these things out so i wanted to make some stuff that was vibey for that and for people to be able to like a little bit deeper or um uh, make it about the way that you live. I mean, there's almost nothing to those songs. It's just vibe. It's just as much simple vibe as I could compress into it, but it, with a, a positive um, direction and outlook to it so that, you know, hopefully it would be, you know, I think music is such a useful tool for communication and also just for resonating with other people and just for, uh, you know, soothing your own soul and stuff. Mm. And I, I think it's really important to have that. And I was, I guess I was um, very influenced by what, I was never a massive Beatles fan, never was. Always like, always like some of their tunes, different tunes at different ages in my life. But over the years, I started to realize that what happened to those guys when they took psychedelic drugs, not only musically, musically it was warp factor, next level, unbelievable. Um, but also what they started to put into their music and the vibe that they started to transmit through their music. Um, individually, particularly, particularly John Lennon and George Harrison, but all of them in some way, I think. Um, was I just felt it was really inspiring and it was you can sort of see this clear point in their life where they took psychedelic drugs and it rewired them in a I think was a really beautiful way and a you know you can listen to imagine and say well it's some hippie nonsense or something or some but I mean it's a that's a really deep song and, and for someone in that position to to talk about having no religion and you know which 
I think it's one of the biggest, organized religion is one of the biggest problems that we have on this planet and things that have been done and are done in the name of, of religion. It, uh, it really doesn't make sense. So I, I, I thought this, imagine no countries. I mean, that's, that was so fucking deep to have said that back then. I mean, even now people can't get their head around the fact that we're, we're mostly all slaves to a sovereign state, a sovereign, and basically owns us if they want to send us off to fight, they send us to jail if we don't go. So, I mean, you know, I believe everyone who's born on this planet has an equal right to be anywhere on their planet where they can survive and, and, and exist and drawing imaginary lines and saying you can or can't come in. For me, it's psychedelic. And uh, so to, for those people to have said stuff on Lennon and to have said stuff like that back then, it really sort of influenced me that I felt that if I, I needed to make it feel like it was going to be useful in some way. Yeah, yeah like absolutely. I, I, I had a kind of feeling about that when I was listening to Just Imagine for the first time, that it had a very kind of Beatles vibe to it, a very positive message, like a good mantra for everyone to, to live by, you know. Just imagine what you, you can do and that, uh, just well, imagine it, that it all come through. It's it like powerful it's stuff. My, my, my wife's been wanting to, she's just done a, a hypnotherapy course and she said that, you know, the, the, the lyrics of Just Imagine are all things that they use in meditation and then oh. hypnotherapy. And I didn't really realize or think about it. <laughs> when she said it and I thought about it, all that, I was like, of course it is. It's, that's totally what it is. Um, but I, when I first showed my wife the lyric, actually two different people, when I first told them or showed them the lyrics, they were like, can't use the word imagine. John Lennon owns that word. He, he cannot use it. He has it. And I was like, I, I don't think so. I don't think John would want to do that to me. <laughs> no. And I think he'd let anyone use. I imagine he would let anyone use imagine. So, uh, well, they're words we can all use, aren't they? And it's, again, it's just imagine, which is different than imagine. Two of the yeah. first people I showed those lyrics to were like, imagine us, John Lennon. It was really funny. No. Yeah, no, I, I didn't pick on the imagine bit. It was more like the kind of, like you said, the kind of hippie vibe, the, 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 the important message that the Beatles used to put in their songs. Because so, um, yeah. I think yeah. the, Be the Beatles are one of those bands where I'm a bit suspicious if anyone says, I don't like the Beatles, because we all least like one or two. I mean, I'm not a big Beatles fan, but I'm sure there's a couple of songs that I, I've enjoyed since a kid and my age now. So, so important, weren't they, really? They have some cool. songs that, to me, like, uh, it's all too much, which whenever I play that song, people think, like, who the fuck is this? And I'm like, it's the Beatles. Yeah. That, that song and Rain, and they have a few B-sides that I, I really like the, the stuff from... Rubber Soul, Revolver, but you know, the, the older I get, the more I go back to the, some of the early records as well. And uh, White Album, of course. I never, I never really, I was looking at um, Sgt. Pepper's the other day and going, I know I don't like this album. Most of the songs on it are fucking shit. <laughs> you, you know, have the day in the life on it. Okay, that's, you know, yeah. there's new with diamonds but nearly when i'm 64 it's like oh come on please or was it pretty meter meter mate oh, 
I think it's just I think it's a really shit album. I'm a magical mystery tour dude, not a Sgt. Peppers dude. <laughs> I imagine that might be a stereotype in the Beatles fandom world. No, no, it's great, it's great stuff. I was I was just thinking then about the album. Um is there a reason why you, you chose to, to go under the name Sonic Boom again for this album? Maybe you've been various not, I'm not going to call them projects, but you've had various names over the years, um, which have all been great. But why, why come back as a Sonic Boom album? Was there any reason or just um, you felt it was the right time? The Spectrum records were all done as a band, really, or yeah. as a collaboration with another songwriter on some level. Um, and I knew this was going to be just me and pretty much I mean, there's a couple of little spots from other people. Um, but I knew it was going to be, I, I knew it wasn't going to be like that, like a band. And um, I, I mean, there was a few different reasons. There was some, I found from touring that um, even when I was touring a Spectrum, some promoters would want to bill it as Sonic Boom. And when I said to them, why are you billing it as Sonic Boom, not Spectrum? And they said, people, more people know who you are than uh, than the band because of Spaceman 3. So I was like, okay, I, I guess that sort of makes sense. I mean, that's, that's probably changed a lot in recent years with the internet more and people discovering Spaceman 3 more. But um, I don't know. I didn't think about it that hard. I have to tell you, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't that big a deal to me. But, um, you know, I was always... I mean, until the old hedgehog came and nicked my name, I was always pretty psyched. <laughs> I still am pretty psyched about the Sonic Boom thing. Yeah. I uh, felt lucky that no one had had that name back in the day, and uh, I like the I like the concept of of a Sonic Boom and that it's an intangible. Uh, it's almost intangible and almost inaudible. I mean, you said it's 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 an oral illusion practically, so. Um, I like the concept of that, so yeah. I was happy to be Sonic Boom for the day. I love the name Sonic Boom, I always have. Just think it's it. Like you said, it's just such a great name. And so with these days, um, with the making music process, I just wonder how much you enjoy the technical side. Are you still a guy who loves the analog synthesizers, or do you kind of work with the computer software as well? Do you, do you still like getting your hands on old equipment and... I do, and the tracks for All Things Being Equal were originally, um, I wanted to make simple synthesizer tracks, monophonic, i.e. one note at a time, not a, not a chord-based or polyphonic thing, but a monophonic backing that, sort of was percussive, was sort of had a bass element and sort of also had high end energy and foam and fizz at the top. And I had some luck with some new synths I bought and I guess it was just just the, the, the planets were in the right uh, orbits. But I came out with some things that I was that were just one monophonic synth running around a lot. And I was really, really happy with the, the vibe and the texture and the sound. And it had a sort of fairly unique um, quality to it. So 
I knew I was really happy with those and I decided I, I should take what I could. There's usually like a core vibe to something like that. And I wanted to take that into a song territory. I mean, my idea of a song is uh, pretty minimal by most people's um, <laughs> measure, I would say. But um, my, my little simple songs, I wanted to, to turn it into that and take that energy into a song because, you know, I, there's loads of music I love that is, that is instrumental and isn't song-based, you know, whether it's I don't know, Alice Coltrane or AMM or whatever, Miles Davis. Um, it's, you, you never really have the connection with people in the same way as when you have a song, when you have lyrics and words. So, I thought I could grow them a little bit, plant them out and grow them for a couple of years and turn them into some songs. And moving here, I, um, things just started forming in my head and I realized that the, I started doing a lot of stuff with plants because it's a perfect environment here for growing most kinds of plants. So I started spending a lot of time doing that and really enjoying some of the forms of some of the things. And I started realizing that there was something about these original jams that had a similar um, logic to them. And that the, the a visual alphabet that I really liked in plants, I also really liked in sound. And I started to be able to see that these sort of echo trails and different things that you can find in plants the same as you can find in sound um had this real so i wanted to do something that was really had a an ecological plant-based influence but i also didn't want it to be a tree hugging hippy dippy sort of record and one of the first people i played the stuff to um I told him what my plan was. It was uh, Ripley from Moon Geo. And he was like, oh, you know, I played in the backings. I didn't have the songs. He's like, oh, that's cool, dude, but you should just do that as like a little singer-songwriter album because no one really cares, do they, dude, about plants. And, you know, it's a bit fucking hippie, isn't it? And I was like, ah. Oh. I mean, I kind of like, when someone tells me that imagine, I can't use the word imagine, that's when I'll definitely use it, really. And when someone says to me, oh, dude, you should do this as a little thing, I'm like, I'm going to show you that that isn't the way it has to be. And uh, yeah. I think it's more, uh, that's like a really cliche sort of way of seeing it. And it can be something beyond that. And you know, plants are responsible for giving us, you know, most of the things that we need to live on, you know, food, <laughs> pretty much all of it comes by way of them one way or another. Um, and certainly you know, the atmosphere we breathe, the weather systems we have, well, you know, we, it, it's, it, it's meant to be, we're meant to have a symbiotic relationship with the whole situation which it seems to have got lost. And I wanted to sort of, I felt I could, I could do it in a way that wasn't too tree huggy. And uh, I think I just about pulled it off. And actually when Ripley heard the, Ripley was at the first show um, where I played the stuff yeah. and the artist came up to me and went, oh my God, 
dude, what the fuck? And I was like, did I, did I pull it off then? He was like, oh man. And I reminded him what he said to me and he went, oh man, I was so wrong. He said, it's not really like me to have even said that. And I was like, no, I didn't think it was at the time. But he says, yeah, I remember saying it. He says, no, but, uh, he was uh, one of the best reactions I had from anyone over the record, particularly early on, was from him. So, um, yeah. Because he's, he's great. Because I've, I've seen Moondira a few times now. I remember hearing them on the radio and just thinking, this is great. But then I also felt... It kind of had a little element of spaceman free, maybe suicide. And then I found out on their website that they were fans of suicide and spaceman free. So now it's for you to know him and, um, which must be great. I mean, really. Yeah, just I think, uh, Nick's their, their last record. Um, yeah. 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 They, they came here to do it. They're, they're, you know, I love them. People, uh, I like working with, I've, I've worked with them a couple of times over the last, 10 years I did a remix for them from the mazes that's yeah uh, record way back and I did some stuff with wooden ships as well and we had one one little bonding moment where we were both playing at a festival in Kentucky if I remember rightly and I turned up solo to do my show and one of the major pieces of equipment had died in transit and I was like fucked i think i had like two songs i could do without <laughs> it was it was the synth but it was also the sequencer as well that, that drove <laughs> drove <laughs> the machine pretty much um and i was like if I, if I only do two songs they will not pay me for fucking this show i've flown all over <laughs> kentucky so i went up to, to moon joe and said uh Hey guys, would you mind backing me up for some songs so I can do like five songs rather than two? Awesome. So yeah, we did that, which is pretty awesome. So yeah, I played I'd love them. To see them. It was a good show. Yeah, it was. They're, they could be really intense, can't they? I've, I've seen some of their shows where visually and the sounds is so intense. I took a couple of friends of mine who never heard of me and Joe, and they were just like, "What was that? This <laughs> is big sound." Just, um, it's brilliant. I love them. I really do. It's like a big juggernaut. Yeah. Or, or a Viking longship, I guess. That's it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so we're now, I believe, on, I think it's around April the 23rd, you've got your remix album, which is a remix yeah. album featuring songs from the current album. Yeah, it is. It's, is it called Almost uh, Nothing's Nearly Enough? Is that, is that the title? Nothing's Nearly Enough. Is Good title. Yeah. I was just thinking, how, how do you go through the process of choosing which tracks that you're going to um, uh, remix? My pretty much, except um, I, Just a Little Piece of Me is one of my faves, but not on there. And I think it was because I, my vocal wasn't that great on that track. And I, I knew I, could, I wasn't going to do them all anyway. So I sort of other than that, I pretty much picked my favorite tracks um, and the ones that most suited what I wanted to do with them. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was take off the original, what had been the inspiration for the track. I wanted to take that out of it and, and have the sort of remove the spinal column almost and just leave the rib cage and bones and um, 
change out some of the uh, arterial structures. But um, yeah, I I've always been a, a, a I've always thought the remix phenomena was kind of something and a nothing, more nothing than a something. And occasionally it works out and you get, you know, I mean, Andy Weatherall or someone like that. You, you get some people who, who, who can take a track and just really make it into something Absolutely. way better than it was. But most of the remixes that are done, that are meant I think, you know, somehow seed some cross-genre exposure, but in my opinion, never do. Uh, I just don't get it. And I wanted to do remixes in the style of my favorite remixes or extended mixes uh, from the late 70s um, sort of disco era where the bands would do their own or craft work or whoever. If they did an extended version, a 12-inch version, they would be done by the band. They didn't bring in an outside mixer. They they already had ideas about stuff they could do and dubbing it out and mm -hmm. what have you. So I always really liked that. And the only time we ever had remixes, I ever had a remix before was in Spaceman 3. And we, at the time, asked Boy's Own, which was Andy Weatherall, uh, and they, they turned it down, they didn't want to do it. So we did it ourselves. And I always really liked those remixes that we did ourselves from Big City. Um, so I just decided I kind of uh, liked the idea of, of doing it as just a limited thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, and it's good. It's great that you can um, do that, like reimagine some of the tracks and, and creatively for you and great for fans because fans now get to have a new record that they can buy from you. And, you know, remixes, yeah. like I said, it can be great sometimes. And I love the video, actually. Is it called On a Summer's Day, the video that you, you yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. I mean, that that guy's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's because... great. I was very lucky with the videos for the whole... Um, all things being equal and uh, so far with the almost nothing is nearly enough videos. A lot of, a lot of really cool people made videos for me. Uh, some of them for nothing and some of them for, for very little relatively because they had time on their hands and they were just looking for things to do. And people were approaching me to do stuff for it. And I ended up with a lot of really awesome videos made by people all over the world, which you can see on YouTube, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to say about uh, Almost Nothing uh, is Nearly Enough, the remix record, is I wanted to make a record where the whole thing was sort of up vibey thing yeah. and a little bit more aimed to late night, uh, maybe a little bit more chemical uh, interaction. And I didn't, I wanted to take off um, spinning coins and wishing on clovers and um, my echo and my shadow and me, which I think were really important to be on the album to give it some, some, some depth of perspective, which is something I wanted in every way on the, the record and the sound and the sleeve. I was looking for extended perspective on things but I wanted to make a record where you could put it on and it didn't 
head down to this Marianas Trench, um, which it does, of course, on all things being equal. <laughs> and so you now release your music, is it via Car Park Records? And I just wondered yeah. over the years, have you struggled to find the kind of right label for your music? Has that ever been a, because it seems, is it like a struggle to get the right label yeah. for you? It is, you know, uh, it has been. Some some have been easier than others, but the record industry uh, often works on a very, very low moral axis um, where they would uh, think nothing, for example, for a 50-year-old experienced executive to seduce the rights away from an 18-year-old legal kid um, in a way that is, I guarantee you that uh, that person will regret having signed it later on. And the, the way that the, I, I think it's, it's on a really thin moral ground, it, it, the way it's done. And I think there's a lot of, uh, abuse, there always has been a lot of abuse of, of musicians and artists by the record industry. And that's changing slowly, slowly, slowly. The major labels still almost, almost completely operate on a zero moral axis, I would actually say. I mean, if it's good for business, fuck everything else, which is you know, something we have to not tolerate anymore in many different industries and it, you know, in our lives. We have to start standing up and speaking out about these things. So I um, was trying to find a different model to work with. I don't think the model that the record industry works on a lot of the time, many elements of it. I don't think uh, are good. So I wanted to do things a little bit differently and car park were down for it. Uh, I mean, things like offsetting the record, which is, you know, I have to tell you nothing but an inconvenience because you have to track, uh, you know, the sales of every record and then pay money to, to mm. on, with that record, it's earthisland.org. Um, but it just has to be done. And, and a lot of labels would go, you know what, we don't want to deal with this. We don't deal with this normally. We're not going to deal with it now. But they were like, that's what it takes. If, you, if we have to uh, charge an extra dollar on the price and it's built in that it's uh, offset straight away, to reduce some of the impact of making vinyl records. Yeah. Petrochemical, not that they have to be made from petrochemical vinyl, but they are uh, at the moment, or most of them. Um, yeah, so, and they've been, I have to say, um, they've been great. The UK um, wing and the US both, um, I can't fault them. They've been very, you know, I realize I have a partnership with them. I, I have some, um, I owe them some things. Part of that, of course, we're partners and trying to sell records. But there's some things I'm, I have problems with social media, for example, Facebook and Twitter particularly. I think they put out a lot of toxicity. Um, I think that, that and that, that's the bigger impact of what they do. And I think that I don't really want to be part of it. So of course I don't tweet and I, I use Instagram because I feel it's probably the more benign of them. Um, 
but I have, I have mixed feelings about all of them. Anything that makes kids do what they do at the moment, which is have their fucking phone in their hand the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I see families of people on holiday here and the kids from this high up to adults all sitting there on some fucking device in this fucking paradise. It's like, oh, dear, 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 dear. Uh, it just, it makes my soul, like, it crushes me to see it. But it's, you know, this massive seduction of, through these medias and I uh, uh, I think we're still finding a good balance for it but so I, I I try and work with them some things I won't do and they understand it but I I try and yeah. play the game as much as I can for them. yeah and what's your thoughts on the kind of the age now of streaming record that's yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, bless. sorry sorry the uh I got a cat cat problem here. Okay, there you go. There you go. Go on. Oh. So yeah, she's uh, she's oh. hungry. What's her Sorry. name? No, it's Sorry. fine. I love cats. What's her name? <laughs> uh, Luna. She's uh, oh, that's a nice name. In in the middle of lockdown, she oh, brilliant. The bush in the garden and is still here. Gorgeous. Oh. yeah. I was just thinking then. So these days with the whole sort of streaming things, what's your thoughts on, I mean, because obviously um, when I was younger, if you, if you wanted to sort of listen to Spaceman 3, um, usually a friend would say, there's a record in such and such, and you'd get the bus and you'd go and get the record. But now you can you can just go onto Spotify and hear Spaceman 3 releases. There is it, Spotify. I mean, music and, and being a, a music fan used to be an adventure. And was a was a, a many yeah. splendid thing with uh, wonderful surprises waiting out there, hiding away to jump out at you when you went out to record stores. Yeah, I don't like the Spotify model uh, in different ways. I don't. I don't think this sort of. I don't really dig this sort of style of con- consumption where people feel they need to have access to all music for all time for a fixed fee. It, it just is goes against everything that I believe in. So, uh, and built into that, what they actually, the, the, the way that it was set up with the crooked deal, I would say, uh, that was done between the major labels and Spotify and had the artists got fucked in that, um, I think is... is we're back to the zero moral axis that these dudes like to operate on. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but I mean, loads of people discover music through it. Loads of people, you know, maybe I, I feel really old fashioned. I feel really old fashioned. And, and one of the reasons I moved to Portugal is in many ways, things here are really old fashioned. I sort of joke with people that everything here is rooted in the 30s, the 50s, or the 70s. And sometimes it's the 1830s, the 1850s, (laughs) the 1870s. And it's true, but there's something kind of cool about it. I, I, I think we're not going anywhere good with this massive population increase the whole time with no real attention paid to it. No one ever wants to broach the subject of population growth. And um, it just, it, I, I think things were, it was a richer experience. I didn't feel when I was growing up, I, I you know, I feel I, I've, 
I still consume music now as the same as I did as a kid. I, you know, I love it, but I don't feel my life is enriched by uh, being able to pull stuff up on YouTube. It's convenient sometimes, but you know, I have big stacks of records here, and I love to go and you know pull out my my reggae or my scarf 45s and just sit and listen to these old Jamaican 45s and. I don't know. It's a, it's a different experience for me. I mean, you know, it's lucky I've been collecting records a lot of time and managed to buy, managed to buy a lot for, for cheap over the years before they became such a, an expensive item as they, they seem to be now. But um, yeah, Spotify, I, I don't dig it at all. I have to tell you. No, I know. I was, I was speaking then about records because um, I found the other day I've got a, um, a radiophonic workshop record and I was just thinking then, is it true? Did you actually work with Delia Derbyshire? Because um, we've had this International Women's Day a few weeks ago and I was thinking, I'm sure you've worked with her. I, had that, I read that somewhere years ago. I did. I mean, it was mad. I was, I was friends with her the last few years of her life. Wow. And we did some. The only piece that, I think there's two pieces that are released and they're both like really short. She had not been doing any music for some decades and it was my, one of my dreams or my missions to try and, because she never stopped listening to music. She never stopped thinking about it and she never stopped being passionate about it, but she didn't actually um, do any. So I was trying to, lead her back into doing stuff because I thought it would be awesome. And the, the things that we did together was, 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 was really fun. She was a lot of fun to, uh, to be at. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. Amazing. Also, I was, I was really lucky in that I had a very tolerant girlfriend at the time who wouldn't mind me talking to Delia on the phone for hours at night, sometimes into the early hours of the morning. Wow. Um, and one, two, three, sometimes nights a week, we'd talk on the phone and she would, she, I was really, you know, was interested in synthesis and had an understanding of modular synthesis, but she sort of took me to the next level with it where she was very passionate about the harmonic series and things like the Fibonacci. And she sort of introduced me to a lot of these, uh, more depths of the physics of sound and, and the mathematics of sound was one of her massive passions. So it was, uh, I knew it was special at the time, but I didn't realize really, I guess I didn't realize how special it was. Um, and yeah, I feel supremely privileged, but I feel like that about most of the people I work with. I work with Jim Dickinson, I work with Simeon from Silver Apples, and you know, Kevin Shields even from My Buddy Valentine. I mean, these are all really, it's a privilege to work with people like that. I have to tell you, they're, um, they're all unique people. Yeah. Uh, many of the people I work with on production, I feel the same way about. They're all a little bit different, or some of them are very different. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun to, to, to see them, how they make music and to see um, the surprises that, that they, the things I would never think of. 
And I guess with all things being equal, I tried to bring everything I'd learned from other people as well as, you know, what I, what I felt, what I intrinsically like and what is my musical core. <clears throat> I wanted to, uh, you know, I always felt I learned stuff from these people and I wanted to incorporate that into a record and for it to be some sort of appreciation of that, uh, which is why I don't need a sleeve. I name as many people as possible. Unfortunately, I think it's only, it's about a third of the people I've worked with, but um, I wanted to acknowledge as many people as possible. Yeah. I mean, is it also true, because this excited me, is it true that Delia gave you a synthesizer? Was it a VCS3? Was that, did that actually happen? A couple of synthesizers, she did. Really? A VCS3 and wow. a um, Wasp. Do you still have these or are they still away? No, I haven't for a long but time. But still, wow. Well, at one time I had four VCS3s. Well, I had two VCS3s and two Synthias. And um, I had sold two of them. I couldn't yeah. really justify or or I, not that I couldn't afford to, but um, I couldn't justify having that many of those things when there's so many people looking for them. You can't keep everything, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, that it was Didier Darvish's didn't make it. I don't think she ever used it. No, <laughs> I, I remember spending a couple of sunny days cleaning that thing, and it was uh, the spiders had moved in on, on it a long time before. So, uh, yeah. And you mentioned Simeon because I'm, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Silver Apples. What was he like to work with? Oh, he's awesome, dude. He's awesome. Such a good... Yeah, he's a really nice guy. and He was... Uh, you know, he's a trip. He's, he's a unique character. Surprise, surprise. I mean, the Silver Apples, I remember when I discovered or found out about a guy in a band called Birdland that we played with. Um, the singer, I wish I could remember his name. He was the first person who was like, if suicide, you should check out the Silver Apple. And they were hard to find those records back then. But over the next couple of years, I found first the first album, the awesome silver metallic cover, and then eventually the second album. And I, I was just like, this is ridiculous. They were just so unique. Uh, and like like Didi and Derbyshire were really the founding fathers of electronic pop and electronic music as we know it now. Without Doctor Who, I, there's a lot of electronic music I don't think would exist. I think it was one of the big inspirations. And I know Delia told me one of the stories. She she had some good stories, but one of the stories she said she said. She said, the three people who came to visit me at the Radiophonic Workshop to find out what I was up to, what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, who was that? She was like, Sid Barrett, Paul McCartney, and Brian Jones. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> so I think that gives you an idea of how important she was to uh, modern pop music. Uh, those people sort out this, you know, hermit, basically, who was hiding away in some little cellar in North London, making stuff for the BBC, a uh, glorified cellar. 
uh, yeah. It's just nice to see she's getting a little bit more appreciation, and we've got this forthcoming film about her, and we yeah, have. She has, over the over the years, there's been documentaries, plays. There's a Delia Derbyshire Day in Coventry. Mm. There's even Street named yeah. I think it's Derbyshire Way in uh, in Coventry, and yeah, she would have been. She would have been mind blown by it. Really, it's really nice. It's a shame. She, it's a shame there wasn't slightly more recognition in her lifetime, but it's the way it goes, I guess. Yeah. I personally, I couldn't imagine being a fan of electronic music ever topping these people as you know that you've worked with. Is, was there be anybody else that you would have loved to have worked with that are alive, or maybe we don't have any more that you would love to have done a track with, or electronic. even? Electronic. I'm a, uh... Mm, wow. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite electronic things that's around at the moment, but I, I, won't, I, I will not be working with them, I'm sure, is Goldfrapp. But oh. I, I like that dude's uh, approach to, to sound and texture. Yeah. But no, I have no... Um, I could see you working with them. Absolutely. Will Gregory, I, I think. I, I don't think so. I don't think they, they need a dip in their career to the extent of working with me. <laughs> he's a big analog synth fan, isn't he? He's uh, He does this yeah. a lot yeah. with that. So I can imagine you two would be a perfect pairing in my head. But yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'd be deep into envelopes and LFOs before we knew what was happening. Uh, and yeah. how are, I know at the moment, um, live music and gigs were a bit of a standstill, but um, I was lucky enough to see you at Yes in Manchester a few years ago, which I believe you may be playing again. Yeah. Um, and I was great gig, and I was just wondering, um, how, do you still enjoy playing music, or are you much someone who prefers the studio environment, or, or do you love both? This... <laughs> It's a mixed bag for me. I mean, the, I enjoy it, but it's hard for me. And uh, the, in the studio, it's not a comfortable place for me. It's a, an intense place, and I can't usually tell what's going on at the time. And it's only things catch up with me afterwards, and I have to walk away from it and come back and analyze it again later on, which is my favorite way to work anyway, is to to be able to re refresh yourself to the point of hearing it fresh and like as if you didn't hadn't heard it before. Um, but it's, I saw a thing that Dave, I always just thought it was me and that it was my particular curse to always have a hard time in the studio. Not a really hard time, but just feels hard. Just feels hard. Just feels emotionally hard somehow. It, it takes a lot out of me. But I saw David Bowie, someone interviewed him and said to him, how, do you, how did you know when something was going really well or like, you know, heroes was being formed? How did you, how, you know, how, what, what, how could you tell that you were doing something really good? And he said, well, you, you can't, you couldn't, uh, I mean, I forget his exact words, but his, his words more or less, well, you can't really exactly tell 
But every time it ever happened, I felt like I was a little out of my depth and my feet couldn't touch the bottom. And I was like, that's how I feel the whole time in the studio. I feel like I could, I could drown quite easily. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's not just me that it's, maybe that's the thing for, you know, other people as well. Where it just feels like this real strange intensity. And live is, um, you know, the live shows is cool and everything. I enjoy that. But uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's 23 hours of, of, of other stuff in the day and the hour of live show. And uh, it's, uh, it can be, uh, it, has, it has its ups and downs. You know, you get to travel, being privileged to be able to travel as part of my work and that's, and meet people all over the world, which is, you know, beautiful. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I have the same feeling before I have about to get a plane as I have when I'm going in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm a little worried. So, but, uh, that's the way it is. I sort of got used to it. I, I fight it. I ride it. Well, I, I said, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been really fascinating and hopefully get to see you live at some point when things get back to some sort of normality, whenever that is. So it'll be great to see you again. September in the UK, supposedly, and in France, I believe. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'm not holding my breath, that's for sure. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.